Hello, this is Salty Therapy, and I'm Tammy. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice, but this podcast is not intended to be used in place of professional treatment. It is intended for encouragement, information, and entertainment. So last week, we talked a little bit about what addiction is, how it affects the brain, predisposition, why someone may fall into addiction, and some statistics about addiction in terms of lives affected or lost and money spent treating and combating this disease. Today, I want to start a conversation about recovery. Before I get started with our conversation about recovery, I want to share a story that is important to me. And I share it in order to encourage some of you out there that may be stuck in shame and feel they cannot be redeemed. My mother is in recovery for alcoholism and has been for over 30 years. Early in her recovery, she opened up to me when I was only 19 years old and talked openly about how she drank and why she drank. My mother was very open with me about my own predisposition to having a drinking problem at some point in my life, as there was addiction prevalent in both my paternal and maternal sides of the family. She invited me to her meetings, and I had the amazing opportunity to sit in that space and listen to other people talk about their experiences. I realized through my mother sharing and attending those meetings, that I shared many of the same tendencies I was hearing about, such as running from problems or holding on to shame. I realized that I was starting to abuse alcohol at times while in college, and that my tolerance for alcohol was growing. I realized that what my mother was sharing with me could actually save my life, that I was no different than the people in those rooms, except that I had the opportunity to do something now in a preventative way. I still had time to make a choice, and I did, and I am so grateful for the gift that my mother gave me in that. You, too, have a story to share, and you may feel it has no value, but you have no idea who may be listening and how your words will land and your story could save a life. Be willing to surrender to the process and be willing to be vulnerable. The blessings can far outweigh the fear. The other thing I would like to say about that story is I can see God's fingerprints in that. I know I have three sons all over the age of 19 And I do not believe that any of them at age 19 would have attended an AA meeting with me or with my mom. I just don't think it would have interested them. I don't know that they would have had uh, the insight to recognize themselves in the stories that were being spoken by people that were much older than they were, much farther along in life than they were. And I'm not saying that because I was able to do that, I'm special. I'm saying just the opposite. Those are God's fingerprints. It was God that gave me the interest in 
going to these meetings. It was God that gave me the insight to recognize my tendencies and to recognize myself in these people. So I am so grateful to him for having given me that and using my mother as a tool to help me in my life. So let's get started. What is recovery? Well, recovery comes in many different forms. There are so many programs out there with so many different names. I, I'm i sure there's programs I'm not even aware of. Um, so I'm going to go over just a few of them that I think uh, you may be familiar with or that are Mm, a little easier to access. So uh, the first is going to be 12-step programs. That's the first thing you think about when you think of a recovery program. So AA is Alcoholics Anonymous. NA is Narcotics Anonymous. Um, we also have CA, which is Cocaine Anonymous. Um, uh, SA, Sex Addicts Anonymous. There's um, OA, Overeaters Anonymous. There's a pretty much an anonymous, an A for almost anything. Um, these are 12-step programs that um, speak to a higher power, but not a specific higher power. I had clients who literally a leaf on a tree was their higher power because that was about as close as they could get in that stage in their life. Um, so it is not religious based per se, um, but it's definitely based on 12 steps, 12 traditions. Um, and there are sponsors and 12 step program or 12 step work that's done, service work, so forth and so on. Another 12 step program that was actually formed off of the premise of AA is Celebrate Recovery. So they basically took the AA premise, the 12 step premise, and they um, built Celebrate Recovery around Christian biblical principles. So in other words, every step has a biblical reference. Um, all of the lessons that are, that are taught in the, um, CR meetings are, are biblical in nature. They are all Christian related. The higher power is very clearly God and Jesus Christ. Um, and they're, um, held in churches. Uh, generally speaking, the people that are attending are like-minded in their faith. Um, and this is uh, tends to be um, meetings that people of the Christian faith um, that are very connected to um, following scripture as a guideline for their life find very beneficial and, and helpful for them. Um, they also work a 12 step program. They also have sponsors, um, and do service work and, and everything that AA does. Another program is called harm reduction. So harm reduction is generally, um, an option for somebody that has a chronic history of relapse, um, that they, they just can't seem to get it. And then the other part is that there's a marked concern for loss of life. Like if we don't do something, this person's going to die. Their next relapse could be the beginning of the funeral process. So 
Um, the harm reduction would be a set of policies and practices intended to reduce the negative effects of drug and alcohol use. Harm reduction programs exist for several types of drugs, including opioids, alcohol, stimulants, ecstasy, and marijuana. Now, essential to harm reduction approach is that it provides people who use substances a choice of how they will minimize harm through non-judgmental and non-coercive strategies in order to enhance skills and knowledge to live safer and healthier lives. Now, I did mention that this is a concept that's usually used for somebody that's got a chronic history of relapse with a marked concern for loss of life. However, there are harm reduction programs that don't work to that elevation. For example, uh, using a nicotine patch instead of smoking would be a harm reduction program, right? You're still getting the nicotine, but you're not inhaling the smoke and the tar into your lungs. So less harm in the body. Um, other ways of harm reduction may include consuming water while drinking alcohol. So you can drink, but between every beer, you have to drink 16 ounces of water. Okay. Um, using substances in a safe environment with someone that they trust, um, having needle exchange programs for people who inject drugs. Um, these are all different types of harm reduction programs. There's other types of harm reduction. Uh, sometimes they're set by physicians, um, or maybe set by psychiatrists. They can be set by recovery centers. Um, it really depends on the individual, depends on the drugs that they are using, um, their patterns of behavior, so forth and so on. And this information I gained from the Canadian Mental Health Program. Um, I will say that um, one of the goals with harm reduction is that they would come to a place where um, they will come down from their initial amount of drugs or type of drugs that they were using um, and break some of the habits enough that they would then want to um, become engaged in a traditional recovery program. So another um, a way of dealing with a um um, drug um, or alcohol addiction is through medication assistance. Now, this does not necessarily take the place of a recovery program such as AA or NA. Um, it can be used in conjunction with. So medication assistance can include methadone, uh, buprenorphine, now, Trexone, which are used to treat opioid addictions, um, methadone and buprenorphine can help to manage withdrawals and cravings. And now Trexone intercepts the drug at the receptor site and it blocks the effect of the opioids. So basically, how now Trexone works is he's a bouncer and he's standing outside the door of the pleasure center which is, we talked about this in my last podcast, the basal ganglia, right? That's the area of the brain, which is the pleasure center. 
So now Trexone's our bouncer. In comes the opiate or the heroin. And the bouncer goes, no, you don't go there. And he bounces them off. And the drug doesn't get into the pleasure center of the brain. Therefore, no high. Now, Trexone may be familiar to you because it is also um, an emergency drug that hospitals, um, police officers, first responders will use when they find somebody that's in an overdose situation. They will either um, inject it through their uh, nasal passages um, or they... Um, uh, have like inhaler type things. And basically they're getting that naltrexone into the system, which will then shut down that, that highway that, um, the, the opiate or the heroin is traveling in and it immediately, um, redirects it. It basically puts them into an immediate withdrawal. So that may be why that sounds familiar to you. For alcohol disorders, medications such as naltrexone and camprol and antabuse are used. Naltrexone and camprol can help with withdrawals and cravings as long as as well as the symptoms of long-lasting withdrawals. Antabuse will cause very negative consequences when ingesting alcohol while on the medication. So depending on your age, you may be familiar with antabuse because that was something that was used for chronic alcoholics um, It's for a long time. And basically how it works is you take this medication and then if you choose to pick up and drink, you will become violently ill, um, not fun. And so it becomes a deterrent basically. Um, but it helps to keep people, uh, in a recovery program without relapse. Uh, another medication assistance process is to treat co-occurring diagnoses. So we talked about this in the first podcast, and there can be things such as anxiety, bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, and they all present symptoms that can be quite uncomfortable and people turn to drugs and or alcohol to um, basically self-medicate, uh, becomes their primary coping skill. And um, a better way to manage that is through um, seeing your psychiatrist or your doctor and being prescribed the correct medication to treat your symptoms. Um, and it treats that mental health diagnosis, which then and decreases the need to self-medicate. So if you're not feeling anxious 24 hours a day, or if your hallucinations or delusions um, or your mania have decreased or have, have dissipated, then you no longer have the need to self-medicate those symptoms. Another thing is rehab. We have inpatient rehab, which is generally 28 to 30 days, but can be longer than that. Um, I have had clients in inpatient rehab for, oh my goodness, up to 15, 16 months, uh, depending on the program. We have outpatient rehab. We have intensive outpatient programs. Uh, there's one-on-one -on -one therapy, psychiatric treatment, 
halfway houses, and some of these are combined. You may be living in a halfway house, working with a therapist, and also in an outpatient rehab program. That's not unusual. So treatment modalities in rehab include uh, relapse prevention, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is CBT, motivational interviewing techniques, and for patients that have chronic criminal behaviors that are related to substance abuse, there are programs such as MRT, which stands for Moral Recognizance Therapy, which looks at the criminal mindset and begins the process of rewiring the thought processes. So why is that important? Well, if somebody has been using drugs long enough and they have basically been immersed in that environment and with the people within that environment long enough, they're, they're, that becomes their normal. And the way they, they think about that world and they think about the processes of getting the drugs, of using the drugs, um, all of that becomes a part of the problem. Um, I have had clients share with me that they are as addicted to the hustle or as addicted to the process of getting high as they are the actual drug. And so having a program like MRT gives them the opportunity to really, really piece by piece break down that mindset and to to rewire it and to gain new perspective and to gain new habits. It's a pretty intense program, but has pretty good results. So the next thing I think is absolutely imperative to talk about is family recovery. If there is somebody that is struggling with alcohol or drug abuse, alcohol or drug dependency, um, and they have a family, that family is affected. Uh, The family directly involved with the person in recovery, uh, it is always recommended that there be family therapy to address the interpersonal relationship issues that are common in these situations, as well as to work on healthy communication skills, as well as setting boundaries and the expectations of each other. So let's look at a couple of those things. Healthy communication skills probably has not been happening as long as the person that's in recovery has been in full, full, full-fledged addiction. Um, Anybody that has a family member that has struggled with addiction knows that there is um, a, a cornerstone of lying and manipulation that's part of that relationship. And because of that, there's a complete lack of trust. Uh, there's uh, feelings of betrayal. There's generally resentment and anger. Um, and when the person's telling the truth and then they're not believed, then they're angry and they feel resentful. Um, and it's just this, it's a vicious circle that goes round and round. So learning to, to health, have healthy communication skills, um, in these, in this new, uh, setting in this new relationship is going to be imperative. Setting boundaries. Well, why would 
the person in recovery need to set boundaries? Well, it could be that one of the family members, maybe even one of the parents, is a trigger, is a trigger for that person. Um, and until that relationship can be restored or resolved, um, they may have to have a clear boundary with them. Perhaps somebody in the family is um, is an alcoholic or a drug addict that are actively in their disease, and therefore uh, the person in recovery cannot spend time with them while they're using or can't spend time with them at all. Um, I knew a man who his trigger was his brother, and even if they were both in recovery, as soon as they came together, it was like they couldn't help themselves. They relapsed. They always relapsed together. It it never failed. Um, so setting boundaries is going to be really important. And it may be important for the family to set boundaries with the person in recovery in the beginning. That person in recovery may need to show accountability, show a pattern of recovery, show that they can be trusted. Uh, they may even be required to do certain things before the family allows them to start uh, being an active member in that family again because of the pain and the lies and the betrayal and anything else that has happened um, in the past. And setting expectations of each other. Listen, this is so important because everybody thinks that the other person knows what they expect. You cannot assume anything like that. You have to be very clear. You have to be very detailed and direct and assertive in communicating your expectations of each other. So for example, you may have a 22-year-old that's in inpatient rehab and he's in week three. He's going to be coming home at the end of week four. And in his mind, he's coming home. He's going back to his bedroom and you know, his counselor is saying, you know, what are your plans for discharge? And he says, I'm going home. And then suddenly they have a family therapy session and the counselor says, so Johnny's going to come home. And the mother and father said, no, he's not. We can't have him around his younger sister. We can't have him at home. There's too much that has happened. We need him to go somewhere else. Now, Johnny's confused. He may be angry. He may be spinning a little bit at this point. Um, the parents are clearly protecting another child in the home and may be angry and resentful themselves. Um, and other, other um, arrangements need to be made at this point. So the, the person in recovery cannot make assumptions about boundaries and the family members cannot make assumptions about boundaries. You know, like I said before, that person in recovery may have to set a very clear, um, expectation from his family that they will not micromanage his recovery or that, um, I don't know that they will, uh, they may expect their family member to go to CODA meetings um, in order to work on their codependency issues while he's going to recovery meetings, AA meetings or NA meetings. Um, so you, the communication is really the key to all of this um, in being able to set boundaries and have clear expectations. 
it is always recommended that family members attend Al-Anon or CODA or Narnon, Alateen, or Celebrate Recovery to address how the addiction has affected them and what their behaviors have been within the relationship. So Al-Anon and Naranon are 12-step meetings that are set up for family members of uh, people that struggle with addiction, whether in narcotics, drugs, or um, alcohol. You know, it differs based on who you speak to. I don't think it matters if you go to Al-Anon or Naranon. It's the same it's the same 12 step program. Uh, the conversations may be different based on the substances, but the basis of the meetings are the same. That's my opinion. You may hear a different opinion from someone else, but I know that there aren't always Narnon meetings in communities, and there may be more Al-Anon uh, meetings in communities because it's been around a little bit longer. CODA is specifically for people that struggle with codependency. Alateen is going to be for teenagers that have um, uh, family members, particularly parents, that struggle with addiction, and it gives them a support system. Um, there is a meeting for adult children of alcoholics, um, ACOA. Um, and CR is set up, the, the motto for CR is it's for people who have hurts, hangups, or habits. So it's not only for people who struggle with addiction, but it's also for people who are family members that have somebody who's struggling with addiction. It may be for somebody that has um, eating issues It may or weight issues. It may be somebody that struggles with uh, lust or anger. Um, and so Celebrate Recovery, again, is a 12-step program, and it's set up a, a little bit differently than AA as far as how the meeting runs. AA is a group of people in a room. They, they have a speaker or they have a topic or whatever, and everything happens from start to finish in one room with the same group of people. Celebrate Recovery, on the other hand, the main part of the meeting is with everybody in one room where they give the lesson based on whatever step they're talking about that day, or they have a speaker. Uh, they may do some praise and worship. They do the chips. And after that, then they are dismissed into small groups. And the small groups are A, gender specific, and B, specific to what you are Therefore, so if you're there because you're in recovery, then your group is going to be 100% recovery focused and it's only going to have people that are in recovery. And then the other groups are going to be split up and it depends on how large the CR group is that you're going to, um, as to whether or not they, you know, really separate those other groups out smaller and smaller. Um, but again, it's a 12-step program with a sponsor and doing the steps and, and all of that. Um, if you paid attention, I said that these are meetings and recommended for family members to address how the addiction has affected them. That seems pretty obvious, right? But also about their behaviors. As a family member, it's really important that you look at what was your part in the whole relationship and the process? Not to say that you're responsible for your family member's addiction. 
But did you enable it? Did you continue to let them live in the home and they weren't paying rent and they weren't getting a job and they were shooting up in the bathroom? Uh, did you uh, continue to give them money knowing that they weren't going to put gas in their car, but they were going to put, um, you know, a drug up their nose? Um, were you codependent in that you were so afraid of the negative consequences that you kept saving uh, your your child or your husband from the consequences and that made it easier for them to stay out there longer. Um, it's important to look at those behaviors so that you can begin to do the work to change that part of your relationship with that person. So it's often difficult for family members to understand the intensity of a recovery program, as well as the amount of time that the person in, re in recovery must commit to in order to be successful. So here, here's the thing, as counselors, and even sponsors in the rooms, they're going to tell your person new in recovery minimum 90 meetings in 90 days. So if they have a job Monday through Friday, nine to five, that means every evening they're going to go to a meeting and they should be looking for a sponsor. And that means that their sponsor is going to want them to call them every day. They may start step work. And that means they're going to be meeting with their sponsor to do step work. They need to be building a support community within that, that recovery arena. And so that means they're going to be making phone calls. They're going to be building relationships with these people. It is going to take time. They're going to be taking time to read. They're going to be taking time to journal, to do step work, to meet with people, to take phone calls, to make phone calls, to go to meetings. This is so important. And it is so difficult for the family members because you may have a wife who says he was never there because of his drinking. And now he's never there because of the recovery. And they resent the recovery because they had the expectation that when the drinking stopped, they would be home and they would be helping and they would be around. And they are, but they aren't there as much as that person thought they would be. Um, the other thing that comes up is there can be some jealousy because they are co-ed meetings. And so the spouse may be afraid that he's building relationships with, um, with women in the room because they're talking about things that are, um, emotional and vulnerable and, um, private. And, uh, there may be concerns that, uh, there are things that are happening in that space that the spouse can't know about. And that's due to confidentiality. If, if my husband is in recovery and he comes home and I say, Hey, how was the meeting? And he says, great. And I go, well, what did you talk about? Or, you know, did you see anyone you knew? He's, he's not going to be able to talk to me about that. And that's hard. That's hard being left out a little bit. So I just want to acknowledge that it is difficult for family members, but please understand that, that in the beginning, it needs to be that intense and it needs to be that committed in order for them to have success. So what does it 
what is important to have um, going into recovery? First of all, a relapse prevention plan. The third part of this series is going to be on relapse prevention. And I am going to speak in detail about what a relapse prevention plan should have. But I think it's not just a plan that you have in your mind, but it needs to be a written plan. You need to take the time to write out the answers, to really think about the triggers and the coping skills and the people and the places, all the things that are going to be on a relapse prevention plan and put pen to paper and write it out. Not only is that good for you, the person in recovery, but it can be helpful for the the family that is trying to support you through this. It can help them with um, supporting you. It can help them with holding you accountable um, and in helping to redirect you and remind you when you need a little bit of oomph. So a relapse prevention plan is very important. Having that sober support community, we just talked about that. Making friends within the meeting rooms, um, having a sponsor. It's one thing to know somebody who doesn't drink. It's another thing to know somebody who used to drink too much and is now in recovery. The person who just doesn't drink does not understand the dynamics of addiction and recovery and the, the, the pitfalls and all those kinds of things. Um, another thing to have are clear boundaries. So one of the things that I make really clear with my clients, if they're new in recovery, especially if they are, um, uh, dealing with drugs is number one, they need to clear their contact list because more than likely at least half of the people in that list um, are affiliated with their drug using. They don't need to be around those people and they don't need to be in contact with those people. Their drug dealer is more than likely in that contact list. Um, better yet, get a different phone and get a new phone number and just start fresh. Get rid of your social media page because here's the thing. You're a customer, your dealer is a salesman, your dealer is not shy and he is persistent and he will find you. And it always seems to happen that they find you at your most vulnerable time. So the more you can do to set those boundaries, to clear, to clear those people out of your path, to actually tell your friends, listen, I'm in recovery now and you know, I know we've been friends for 10 years, but I can't be around you now. I can't do that and be sober. And you will find that in most cases, a lot of those people are going to be supportive of that. Not the dealers, but there may be friends that are supportive of that. Another thing that I think is important to have is a predictable schedule keep it simple. They talk about that in the room, have a very predictable everyday schedule. And it may sound boring, 
but it is a safety measure. One, it helps with accountability. Two, it helps to keep your stress down and manageable. It helps with anxiety. Um, if you're struggling with anything that pertains to memory or concentration, it helps with that area. Um, it's just something that is, um, really important. If you bring too much back into your life and you let your life get chaotic, you're going to end up putting recovery down and your priorities are going to get mixed up. So having a predictable schedule is important. The next thing is if you're in a 12-step program, got to get a sponsor. You've got to actively work the 12 steps. You've got to identify a home group, which is going to be that group that you go to every week, no matter what. And that's the group that you're going to engage in service work. So giving back, I don't care if you're setting up the room, if you're making coffee, if you're the door greeter, uh, maybe you give rides to people who've lost their licenses or cannot drive, um, but doing service work and attend minimum 90 meetings in 90 days. That is A, so people get used to seeing you. So when you suddenly don't show up, they can check in on you and say, how you doing, buddy? Right? The other is that you're setting a schedule for yourself. So when you stop going to meetings, you don't feel comfortable. You feel like you're missing out on something and you want to be there. Um, and you're being saturated with recovery and you're being reminded of why you're doing this really, really hard thing because suddenly you have to feel feelings again and you've got to deal with things again. You can't numb out and you can't run away. And that's hard. And having a community in a space that you can go to and talk about that stuff and be reminded that it'll be okay, really important. So the last thing that I want to talk about is something called Pause, P-A-W-S, which stands for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So it's an acute withdrawal. Well, I'm sorry. Your initial withdrawal is your acute withdrawal, right? And it lasts usually up to two weeks. Um, and that's your initial detox, okay? After that comes the post-acute withdrawal, which is pause, S standing for syndrome. This is the second stage of withdrawal. And this occurs because the brain is attempting to recalibrate itself after active addiction. And it's rebalancing its chemistry, its chemical balance. So you got to think about if you were smoking meth, if you were shooting up heroin, if you were drinking, you know, a lot of liquor, um, these are all things that, um, they're eventually, they're going into your blood, they're affecting your liver, uh, and it's affecting your brain. You know, your brain is not at its healthiest. And so the brain is going to be working double time to try to, um, a get used to not having those substances in there anymore and to get itself, um, to find its equilibrium again. <clears throat> and that may take some time. It's going to depend on your age. It's going to depend on what your drug of choice was. How much did you use? How did you use it? How often did you use it? Um, how long had you been on it? Um, 
it it just is going to be a varied um, uh, equation based on every person. So the good news is that it can last a couple few months. The bad news is it can last up to two years, depending on the answers to those questions. The other good news is that the severity of your symptoms due to pause will diminish with time. And it is not it is not common for everybody to have every symptom uh, or to have every symptom at the same time. Um, so don't try to project the future. If you're somebody who's considering recovery now and you're listening to this podcast, don't listen to this and say, oh, forget it. I can't go through that. It's, it isn't as bad as it sounds. However, because the symptoms exist, it's important for you to know it because when these things happen, you'll want to know, okay, this is normal. This is part of the process. It's temporary and it will go away. Symptoms include insomnia, which if you've had it, you know it stinks, irritability, aggression, or hostility, anxiety or panic attacks, depression, impaired concentration, lack of motivation, mood swings, fatigue and low energy, foggy thought process, poor memory, poor impulse control, increased sensitivity to stress, cravings, alcohol or drug dreams, and apathy, which is lack of interest. Now, even as I read that list, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, I certainly wouldn't want anxiety or panic attacks. Again, I want to repeat that not all of these will happen to everybody. Not all of these will happen at the same time. And also, part of your recovery plan should include being in connection with your doctor, your physician, and or a psychiatrist, and or a therapist. Um, And if you are having marked depression, if you are having panic attacks or marked anxiety, there are things that can be done medicinally to help you with those symptoms. So it doesn't mean that you'll be on an antidepressant forever. It means you may be on the antidepressant for a season until you have made it through this post-acute withdrawal syndrome. You have been in recovery. You have a solid support system. You have regained uh, your ability to communicate, uh, self-esteem. You have your brain has recalibrated. Your physical health has gotten in, in line. And with your doctor's assistance, you can titrate off of those medications. So there are things on here that you can get help with uh, while through working with a doctor while you're going through it, okay? As I said earlier, symptoms may vary based on which substances were being used and the length Um, of symptoms can vary based on the extensiveness of the addiction.
Thank you for listening today. Clearly, I cannot address everything in a limited podcast. As it pertains to this subject, as it is broad and complicated at best. However, I did try to hit the high points and bring some of the important topics to the table to begin a conversation. There are a lot of resources available that can offer information and assistance in the area of addiction and recovery. I've mentioned several of those organizations in this podcast and in my last podcast, so please see my show notes for those links. You can also Google. Um, there are a number of government um, managed websites that have a lot of information about recovery and about addiction. Um, there are recovery centers. You can contact uh, your local AA um, headquarters and get information from an alcoholic's perspective. You can do the same with NA. Um, you can reach out to people that are in recovery if you know them and they can help direct you in, um, the right direction. Um, there are many different ways to get information. Okay. I just want to say, stick it out, go through it. I know that the consequences can be hard, but it is so worth it. And if you relapse, don't look at it as a failure. Look at it as an opportunity to learn. What were you doing right that was keeping you on track? And what did you do that threw you off the rails? Learn from that. Get back right on that train track and get going again. You don't have to relapse and stay relapsed. You can get right back into recovery. There's no shame. There's no, you are never going to be met at a meeting by a group of people that say, oh my gosh, what were you thinking? They're going to be like, man, I'm glad you're back. So hang in there. It's worth it because a life after recovery is an amazing, beautiful thing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give me a five-star rating and share it with your friends and family. If you have comments or suggestions for future podcasts, you can find me at saltytherapy.com or at Salty Therapy on Instagram and Facebook. Peace and joy. See you next week. <music>